0: When you go back far enough, everybody has some sort of connection to foraging because none of us would be here if it wasn't for that action.
1: Hi healthiest friends and welcome to the Healthiest podcast, where we explore food and wellness in all their delicious complexity. I'm Amanda Shapiro, the editorial director at Bon Appétit and the founding editor of Healthiest. And I'm so excited to introduce you to our very special next guest, Alexis Nicole Nelson. You may also know her as the Black Forager. I think the best way to get to know Alexis is really by pulling out your phone and pulling up her TikTok or her Instagram videos. But before you do that, stay with us. We want to give you a proper introduction. And what she's doing on those videos is usually traipsing through the woods or the fields or the parks of Columbus, Ohio, where she lives, in search of wild produce. Take a listen.
0: This is my land, otherwise known as cowboy toilet paper. Listen to the fleece. It's so soft. You can use it to make tea, but I just think that it's cute. Oh, and she's also singing
1: a lot of the time, which we're definitely going to get into. She's one of those people who is just so conversational, so charismatic that she already feels like a friend. I'm so excited to talk to you today, Alexis Nicole Nelson. Welcome to the Healthiest Podcast.
0: Oh my God, Amanda, thank you so much for having me. Holy smokes, that was just like a beautiful intro, and now I'm just going to be like, Hi, my name is Alexis and I am a forest troll. Let's talk about eating stuff off the ground. Well, that's exactly what we want to talk about. So that's perfect.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's really exactly the first question I have, which is watching your videos, I feel like I'm outside with you, but what is it really like to be out there in the fields and forests around Columbus, walking with you,
0: I stop constantly, um, occasionally to my partner and my dog's chagrin. I, <laughs> because to me, it's just so exciting. It's not my fault that there is a noteworthy plant every three to seven feet along every single trail that we walk. So I am I'm a frequent stopper. For sure, very capable of like speed walking a fifteen minute mile, but miles usually take me closer to a a solid thirty because there's so much to behold.
1: I feel like you see the world differently than a lot of other people. Literally, you see things that other people don't, and you've talked about this. I think you call it plant blindness, and you want to you want to you're on a mission to eradicate, (laughs) or maybe that's too strong a word. You're on a mission. (laughs) (laughs) to reduce plant blindness. What does that really mean?
0: Oh my gosh. So nine times out of 10, probably even more than nine times out of 10, but we'll say that just because I don't need to go getting a big head. Studies show. (laughs) Studies show that when you ask any random person that you come across to identify a tree that they're standing by or to look at a grassy knoll and tell you what they see in front of you, they'll say plants or- T- grass or trees. And then we do have these little pockets, these like almost like cultural touchstones. Like everyone knows what a dandelion is. Um, Cause for most of us growing up, they were like the scourge of our parents' lawn. So.
1: Right. Or the things we would blow on and make the, the dandelion <laughs> And make the wishes. Yeah. Make the wishes. Right.
0: Exactly.
1: But you do seem like a very natural performer and watching you just break into song about dandelions or pesto or whatever, I just have to guess that you have some kind of musical theater performance background. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a fellow theater, high school theater nerd. So I see, when I see one, I know one.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I originally went to college as an environmental engineering major And after crying after too many labs and realizing that I hated physics, no hate, no shade to the physicists. Our brains just are wired very differently.
1: We need them, but we don't have to be them.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And I always felt like that was what was missing in academia, period, was having that kind of joyousness in relaying information and in watching people process that information.
1: Yes, and teaching through entertainment where where people don't even realize that they're learning or they're changing their entire perspective on something because you're singing to them.
0: Exactly. I love it when people are just like, well, I just realized I've been watching your videos for an hour. And I'm like, yes, good. That means that I have done a good job. Thank you for this high praise. It's, it's so rewarding teaching people just like a handful of plants and then having them come back to me a couple of weeks later and say, I didn't even realize that I was passing so many plants going on walks through my neighborhood because it kind of flips on a switch. They download like iNaturalist on their phone and suddenly a city block seems whimsical and like almost magical whereas previously you you wouldn't have stopped to notice those kinds of things
1: so i want to take a big step back and mm-hmm. i want to ask you about your background so i know you're not the first generation of of nelson or whatever surname there is on your maternal side. Uh, Mm -hmm. In in the Ohio area, you have talked a bit about your mom's relationship with plants and what you learned from her. But I also know it goes even further back than that. So however far back you want to go, tell me about how that kind of relationship with the land is part of your family.
0: Oh, absolutely. So we're very lucky um, because not Not every person of color, and especially not every Black person in the United States is lucky enough to be able to trace a lot of their familial history back. On my mom's side of the family, with her father, uh, they've been in the United States since the 1600s. They were farmers in New England after the Revolutionary War. And with my mom's mom's side of the family, with my my nana, she was a second-generation Cape Verdean immigrant to the Cape Cod area. And with a lot of bigger and immigrant families, a lot of them brought foraging practices with them. And, I mean, my Nana was, like, working in the cranberry bogs in the 1930s to help better support her family. And that's a whole lot of exposure to plant life that you just get to learn about with each passing day while you're out there. So,
1: yeah, tell me more about that. She was picking the cranberries and selling them
0: mm -hmm. for food. Yeah, well, picking the cranberries for uh, someone else's business which one of many reasons why I think being a forager of color is very revolutionary is because nine times out of 10, historically, and even in the present day, if you are a person of color and you are tending the land, it is typically for someone else's game. And that person tends to be richer and unfortunately often whiter than you. And so when you go back far enough, everybody has some sort of connection to foraging because none of us would be here if it wasn't for that action. But for the Indigenous people who were already here, like that, that was food, that was eating. And then a lot of those Indigenous folks in turn taught Black people who were enslaved those same tips and tricks and about those same kinds of plants. Because as a Black person living on a plantation, you were lucky if you were getting enough to eat to sustain the kind of duress you were putting your body through every day. So it was smart to know how to forage, how to trap, how to fish, how to hunt, so you could better take care of yourself and better take care of your family and the rest of your community. Mm -hmm. So when slavery ended, a lot of Black folks expected to be able to continue those practices And some even hoped to make a living out of it because they were so good at it. And let me tell you, a lot of those plantation owners who were also, you know, parts of the local government in a lot of areas of the South did not want that to happen. Uh, They just lost an extremely efficient and extremely cheap workforce and wanted to do pretty much anything within their power to try and reverse that as much as possible while still remaining within the bounds of the law. So what happened is those public spaces that a lot of Black folks and Indigenous folks and just poor folks in general would harvest from, fences were put up around them, some metaphorical, some actually physical. So you no longer could be going into those spaces to harvest. Mm -hmm. Sad air horn sound. Um, I have to be light about this, otherwise I get big sad about this. So a lot of those folks had to return right back to the plantation as sharecroppers. And it really put a lot of Black folks at at a disadvantage when we were already disadvantaged enough to begin with.
1: Yeah, the irony of calling it free when you essentially yeah. end up back where you started.
0: I mean, as my nana got older, right until she passed in her 90s, she grew tomatoes on her third floor balcony in Boston, Massachusetts, and very much passed on this connection to plants, this connection to the earth through plants to my mother. So when my mother moved from New England to Ohio and suddenly had all of this space to work with, she crafted these beautiful gardens And if I wanted to be spending time with her on the weekends, like her way to decompress was working in the garden, so I would also have to work in the garden. Work is a very loose term. It is very hard to corral a five-year-old into doing anything even remotely beneficial uh, for any chore, not just outside. But my strongest memories are that my mom used to quiz me on the plants in our yard from a very young age. So by the time I got to elementary school, I could be like, oh, basil, look at that stem. It looks like the mint. It must be in the mint family. And then being able to like go and find a book later and then have that confirmed. But out of all of the herbs, out of all of the flowers, out of all of the trees that my mom taught me about, the plants that stuck with me the most were the weeds that were also useful.
1: Wow. Why do you think it was? Why do you think you went to the weeds? (laughs)
0: I think as a as a gently lazy child, like I was, who grew into a gently lazy adult, I saw all of the time and effort my mom was putting into the tomatoes, all the time and effort my mom was putting into pruning the mulberry trees and taking care of the lavender bushes. And then suddenly you would turn around and there would be these plants that you had no say in, that you put no blood, sweat, nor tears into that were even more nutritious sometimes than the things that you did put all of that time and effort to. And they were just there for the taking. I thought it was so revolutionary as a child. It's
1: magical in a way that, I mean, there's something about these plants that, that seem to have superpowers, the way that they spread and crop up without any human interaction really my my great-grandmother and my grandmother on my mom's side were both heavy gardeners and they would always call them volunteers which I think is just a hilarious I mean I know that's like a common gardening term but I just always thought that that was so hilarious yeah
0: they're like "Mm, but I volunteered (laughs) can't I say please and and a lot of people say no
1: Yeah. Oh my God, that's so sad. (laughs) But it's so beautiful that you took those volunteers and you were like, "I, I see you. I appreciate you. You are wanted here.
0: Yeah. I think people get really down on plants that we consider weeds, especially when those weeds are considered invasive. The plants don't have that kind of agency. It's not their fault that they're good at their job. And If there's a chance to develop a symbiotic relationship with that plant instead of just trying to, you know, nuke it out of the system, why not do it?
1: After the break, Alexis, Nicole, and I will talk about one place that rarely develops a symbiotic relationship with the land, and that's the restaurant industry. Okay, let's get back to our conversation with Alexis Nicole Nelson. We're talking about the places that don't develop a symbiotic relationship with the land, like the restaurant industry, which obviously we cover a lot on Bon Appetit. I know among restaurants, foraged foods are considered super gourmet. I remember when I started Mm -hmm. working here and I had never even really heard about ramps, and suddenly it was like the spring and everyone was like, oh, it's ramp season, it's ramp season. And then I go to a restaurant and I'm like, These ramps are on this menu and this thing is like thirty dollars like what is going on um you actually made a rap about ramps i think on your (laughs) on tiktok which i found again so entertaining and so educational (laughs) tell me you had some you have some very strong feelings about this subject what's your take
0: i do oh this is the part of the episode where i get to make enemies yay So for those of you who are, I guess, lucky enough to have escaped the fervor around ramps every single spring, uh, ramps are allium tricocum. They are a native allium to North America. They really kind of straddle the sweet spot perfectly in between onions and garlic, uh, which I feel like are kind of the two ends of that allium spectrum that we like to compare everything to. And they're... At least in some parts of the eastern half of the United States, they are very prolific. But there are now some parts on the eastern side of the United States where they are not, and a large reason (laughs) why that is the case is because a lot of folks, for the sake of selling to the luxury food industry, were going into wooded spaces and just completely clearing them out, I did not do a lot of ramp harvesting this season, even though I had ample opportunity to. Um, There are kind of two camps. There is the camp of only gathering leaves. Uh, Ramps put up these beautiful, uh, like, wide, almost mm, lance-shaped leaves in the springtime. So some people will only harvest the leaves. I'm gonna be real, real with everyone right now. The leaves are like the only part of the ramp that has any flavor that I feel like you cannot replicate with another Allium. Mm. (laughs) So people will gather one leaf from a single plant that has two or more leaves and only do that for a handful of plants in the area that they're gathering from. And if they're sparse in that area, then you just don't gather from them at all. And then there is the camp of folks who will dig them up, bulb and all. And of course, if you're taking up the entire root system, then that plant and that spot's done. You know, that's that's the end of its life cycle. If, if ramps were very quick growing, this would be a little less of an issue. My big issue is the people who see dollar signs in their eyes and see the chefs putting the call-outs up on Facebook, offering X amount of dollars per pound— and then going in and just filling up gallon buckets with whole ramps. Um, that is why one of the two ramp variations is now on the endangered list in the state of New York when it wasn't previously, and it's now on the special concern list in New Jersey and Tennessee, both of which are pretty recent developments.
1: Right. There seems to be this vicious cycle where they're in demand because they're considered rare, but they're rare because mm-hmm. we, like, over foraged them and created this demand for them that is self-perpetuating and good for, you know, a restaurant owner if you can charge Mm -hmm. that much and get that much and make them feel like this rarefied thing, but not good for the species in the short or long run.
0: Exactly. I think foraged food is, of course, very exciting. If I didn't think it was exciting, I would be very bad at what it is that I do. So I get a lot of the cachet, but Boy, golly! I would love to see more big restaurateurs putting like a garlic mustard, you know, puree onto their plates, putting more dandelions into their meals, taking a lot of non-native species and especially invasive species, and kind of hamming it up for them just as much as we do for for things like ramps.
1: Yeah, take those volunteers. Yeah, take those volunteers. They are volunteering. What are you? Super excited to be picking right
0: now. Juneberries! Oh happy Air Horn this time. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, Juneberries are one of those plants that I go on about all year, and then it'll be just about time to start harvesting them. And I'll get in my own head and be like, have I made too big of a deal out of this? I've literally been talking them up since the second that the season ended last year. What if I bite into this Juneberry and it isn't everything that I remembered and my life is a sham? And then I bite into one and then it's just blueberry meets apple bliss. And then I'm like, nope, just kidding. These are still my favorite fruit. And I'm excited that they are back for a few short, beautiful weeks.
1: My jaw dropped when you said blueberry meets apple. Like, tell me more. What what are these magical berries?
0: Uh, they are so good. They are in the Amelanchier genus. There are a couple different species. They are native to North America. And they grow in these just hefty clusters all over the tree, Um You will not have to worry about, like, sharing with the birds because there will be berries you cannot reach. And those berries don't belong to you. That's, like, the mindset that I take every time that I'm picking. Like, oh, I can't reach that. It's not my berry. That is, like,
1: a perfect motto.
0: (laughs) And they are are delightful. They are just pectin-laden enough that they set a jelly by themselves. Oh, my gosh. I... I make Juneberry hand pies, just little flaky dough half moons filled with Juneberry jam. And they are my favorite thing to make and my favorite thing to eat. And my dad, who's very weird about food, it's like the one foraged thing of mine that he will eat. <laughs> I, will, like, I will bring you Juneberry jam. I'm driving through. Don't New say York things like jam. that, Alexis,
1: Nicole. <laughs> I, I, I will not forget. I will put that in my calendar and send you an invite.
0: I will do it too, right into the right into the g cal the second this recording is over.
1: I just need to say it, even though it's it's sort of intuitive. But if you're into foraging, it seems like by default you're into cooking. Exactly. Do you think of yourself as as a chef? How do you think about cooking with what you forage?
0: Oh my gosh! I mean, it's one of my favorite parts of the entire process. Like. Yesterday, I made Japanese knotweed scones, and I was basing it off of a lemon scone recipe. And I'm like, well, they're both acidic. Japanese knotweed tastes very rhubarby when you add a little bit of sugar to it. It makes it skew super sweet. And I was just like, oh, okay. Well, Japanese knotweed gets like weirdly stringy, so I'm going to make it into a puree. And if I'm putting the puree into a scone dough, then I need to pull back on the soy milk I'm putting into it. Otherwise, they're just going to be big old pillow cookies and... I, it's weird because I don't think of myself as a chef. I'm definitely just like a very passionate home cook.
1: <laughs> well, I should
0: also mention that you're vegan. Yes. Oh, gosh. As if I needed to make things harder for myself. <laughs> I have to go find my food and then it can't have any dairy or eggs in it. Challenge accepted.
1: <laughs> well, so I think there is this stereotype probably that if you're vegan and you're a forager that you're like just sitting there munching on leaves all all day. Like, what oh do you gosh. what else do you like to cook, like even foraged ingredients aside,
0: like I had mentioned earlier, my mom's family is Cape Verdean uh we have even recently confirmed that the port the part of the family that came here in the is also Cape Verdean, and there is a lot of really delicious, hearty food that comes with that tradition that has like made its way into the United States, my favorite of which is our kind of take on the traditional rice and beans, and it's called jagasita. And it is so tasty, much more spice laden than I feel like a lot of traditional rice and beans dishes tend to be. But the broth is all formed around these beautifully slow simmered browned onions that you would typically uh, brown in a little bit of butter or like lard if you wanted to, or just like a neutral oil if you wanted to. And that's the other thing is like every Cape Verdean family has their own take on JAG. Like you could go down the street to, you know, your your mom's friend's house and they make it with peas instead of with kidney beans like my Nana did. And there's so much room for variation, but it all really centers around the way that the onions are cooked before adding the water to make the broth and the amount of paprika, which gives it this beautiful reddish golden color when it's finished and i my mom is going to call me about this and in the, and this in particular because i hated jag as a kid <laughs> yeah. hated it we would get on the plane to go see my nana and it would take us forever in the car to get from boston logan to her house because of the big dig i just got to age myself and that's really fun I'm and right then we get you. there <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad that someone understands. And then we'd get there and I'd be starving and my Nana would be like, cool, here's tuna salad and jag. And I'd be like, I came all this way (laughs) for rice and beans. And then my mom would like get mad at me in front of her mom and then pull me aside and be like, we're going to go get you fried clams, but just this one time. And it was never just that one time. (laughs) But as I got older, and especially after I lost my Nana in my early twenties, it suddenly became this very emotional way to connect with her and to feel more connected with my family and our history in general. It's my biggest comfort food now, especially in the winter we, you know, just had going from 2020 into 2021 and how isolating it was. Oh, my God. I had just my giant cast iron pot going filled with jag like at the top of every single week. That's just all we were living off of all winter. And sometimes I get to have fun with it. You know, I'll add in some diced field garlic bulbs and with the onions at the beginning, Lately, I've been having a lot of fun using sweet bay magnolia leaves in place of the bay leaf that you traditionally put in uh, alongside the onions and the other aromatics. So I still get to put like my own little spin on it while still feeling really connected to my heritage.
1: I love that. And it's like a, a pot of family
0: right there. It is. And that's what it feels like. I love it every single time. My mom would always just be like, nothing makes me happier than calling and hearing that you are making jag right now. Like hearing the onions sizzling in the pot.
1: How many times has she said, like, I told you so, that you actually now like that that dish?
0: Now I just beat her to it. It started getting very bad, I'd say, like five years ago. And she was like, hmm, 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 hmm. Oh, so I, I come over and I snoop through your fridge because I'm your mother and you have Jag in the fridge. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that mom, you you really nailed it. The hmm, that like
0: mom. Hmm. <laughs> exactly. The, we know exactly what's going through my mind right now. So I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to let gonna you, you stew on it for a second.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. All right. Well, I know we just have a few minutes. Can we get the ukulele back?
0: Oh, my gosh. Let's see. I just hope that I remember where chords are this time. Okay. Okay. We can. Mm. That sounds like a song sounds. Sure. Yeah,
1: it sounds like a Juneberry song, maybe.
0: A Juneberry song. Oh, my gosh.
1: (laughs) No pressure. No pressure.
0: (laughs) Oh gosh, okay. Now I'm just going through like, ooh, rhyming words, rhyming ri- words, rhyming words. Okay. There it is. Thanks for listening. I have to go soon. So if you need me, you'll catch me gathering berries in June. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That was so beautiful and a perfect way to sign off what was really an amazing and enlightening and inspiring conversation about foraging with Alexis Nicole Nelson. Thank you so much for being with us. I had such a blast talking to you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This has just been highlight of my day, highlight of my week. I love Healthish, so it was an honor to get to be here.
1: Thanks for listening in on the second episode of the Healthyish Podcast. I hope you feel inspired to do a little research, step outside, snoop around for some magnolia buds, or just be a little more thoughtful about where your meal comes from. I highly recommend following Alexis Nicole on her TikTok at Alexis Nicole and on Instagram at The Black Forager. Her videos are a delight, I promise. And if you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us keep putting out the good vibes. For the recipes and stories mentioned in the episode, you can follow Healthyish on all the social platforms at healthy underscore ish, or just visit our website for more. The Healthyish podcast is produced by Bon Appetit in partnership with Pod People. Vishnu Vallabhaneni is our senior producer, and Morgan Foos is our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Trey Booty, and our theme song is by Particle House. A huge thank you to the Pod People production team of Matt Saab and Madison Lusby. From Bon Appetit, June, Kim, and myself provided editorial direction for the episode. Special thanks to Julie Shen, Ginny Bloom, and Nico Steele. I'm your host, Amanda Shapiro. I'll see you next week.